0: Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. My guests today on the Art of Range are Morris and Beth Robinette. They are a father-daughter team who ranch in eastern Washington, actually not far west of Spokane. Spokane is the second largest city in the state. Uh, I've known them for some time. They've applied more thought and planning to making a ranch work in what many people would consider to be a pretty challenging physical environment than most people I know and have, I, I think, something to show for it. Uh, Morris and Beth, welcome.
1: Hey, thanks for having us on. Big fan of the pod.
2: (laughs) Thanks. Yeah, I've I've really enjoyed listening to, uh, I think I've listened to most of them now. They're great.
1: Good, good.
0: Uh, Morris, you've been ranching here for a a, a while. Can you tell a bit about the history of the ranch and what your pathway was to continuing in this instead of other possible careers? And then then Beth, uh, you do the same thing.
2: Sure. Well, uh, thanks for having us on. Uh, uh, hope we can contribute something to the to the cause here, or as you put it, the conversation. Um, so the Lazy R started off in nineteen thirty seven when my grandpa, after bouncing around several places in Eastern Washington, uh, landed on this this spot and started milking cows. Uh, he had about twenty cows and three kids. And, um, so they did, they did pretty well, good enough to sustain themselves anyway, um, through the depression and, and into the beginning of the war. And then milk prices were pretty good during the war. So they did pretty good. And then both my, my, my dad, my uncle went into the air force and, uh, uh, spent their time there, got out in 45. And then my dad, Uh, took over, uh, he, he took over the place in 46 or seven, I think, and, um, got rid of the milk cows and, um, um, switched to beef in about 50. And then I was, so I was born in 51. And so we were beef cows. My mom was a, uh, school teacher. So there was always a full time, steady income, which helped keep the ranch going. Likewise, with my grandma, my grandma was a, a professional cook at the at the nearby uh, 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 d- d- disabled d- developmentally disabled uh, hospital, and so she also had a steady income. And it's always been uh, a good, steady income helping the helping the ranch out. Anyway, I grew up here raising cows, uh, my folks didn't encourage me to get into ag at all. And so I didn't, Mm -hmm. I did my uh, academic training in rural sociology, got a job in uh, uh, Butte, Montana doing research for an energy development company. And that worked out really good for a few years. Uh, But then I kind of had a desire to come back to the ranch and economics and that business kind of shifted. And so I came back here in 81, uh, had saved up a little money, bought 20 heifers, and um, proceeded to chase cows. Been doing it ever since.
1: Uh, I guess I'll hop in here. Yeah, I I also was not encouraged to choose agriculture as my vocation. Um, and, and I wasn't really interested in it growing up either. I, I don't think I had a full realization of, um, of like, just what it meant to grow up on a cattle ranch and, and how kind of unique that was as a kid. Um, it seemed like sort of something that was just happening in the background. And as I've grown up, kind of realized just what an immense privilege and, a, and kind of incredible lifestyles um, that I, I had growing up. Um, but I was uh, I was really into theater and poetry and creative writing in high school. I never felt like i um i didn't feel like I fit in with the clique of f f a kids um I felt much more at home with the the weird drama kids <laughs> and uh when I went to college actually the first the first class that I took was um was a interdisciplinary class that combined was all about food and agriculture, but it was a kind of a combination of uh, ecology uh, and science class, uh, social justice class, and a critical and reflective inquiry class. And it was co-taught by three professors, but all, all through the lens of food. And uh, that that class combined with the experience of uh, not living on the ranch for the first time in my life, living in a dorm room and eating in a cafeteria um, and kind of getting this really startling contrast to um, the way I had grown up really helped me appreciate just how kind of how special that experience of growing up on the ranch was and helped me realize that I had a pretty tremendous opportunity to come home and take over management. And uh, and so it's been kind of a, a weird circuitous uh journey through my academic studies, I ended up getting really interested in business and marketing and, and how that applied to, um, to agriculture and specifically sustainable agriculture and, uh, ended up kind of focusing on that for my undergrad. And then, uh, actually family circumstances sort of forced, uh, forced me back to the ranch earlier than I would have anticipated. Um, I moved home with my now husband, uh, to take care of my grandma who had pretty advanced Alzheimer's and needed a full-time caretaker. So uh, I ended up coming back right after college to move in with her and take care of her and uh, got more and more involved in the ranch. And uh, now I can't imagine doing anything else. Mm,
0: I like that story. I think Malcolm Gladwell would say that most good stories are circuitous like that. Uh, Since this is a range podcast, uh, I think it would be interesting for listeners to hear a little bit about the physical environment that you're ranching in. You have a combination of irrigated ground and uh, essentially native rangeland and some dry forest. Uh, would either of you like to describe the, uh, the, those characteristics of the, of the ranch and your grass base?
2: Yeah, I'll give it a shot, but uh, Beth can jump in someplace. So we live in eastern Washington uh, we're looking at about 15 inches annual precipitation. Most of it comes in the winter. Uh, we just had a huge, big rainstorm. There's no snow on the ground right now, which is it's January 22nd. And that's extremely unusual. We usually always have a foot, 18 inches, maybe two feet of snow this time of year. So this is a very strange year, but I'm coming to think that strange years are the normal anymore. <clears throat> anyway, um, so the area we we live in is called the Channelled Scablands, and it was uh, the geography was formed by the Ice Age floods, and uh, that was a multiple occasion of a ice dam, a glacial ice dam in Libby, Montana, that dammed up the Clark Fork River all the way back to I don't know Anaconda or something like that, and then uh, the the dam would break and all that water would drain and it came over the top of the ranch. rancher. Estimates are that when it came over my place, it was 400 feet deep and 60 miles an hour. I don't know how they come up with those numbers, but it, it's pretty mm-hmm. impressive. Anyway, uh, that had a huge effect on the topography. We're primarily basalt here. And then that gouged, when that water came by, it gouged channels. And so the channels then uh, collected topsoil, uh, over a year over the years in thousands of years actually and and became extremely fertile but then they're surrounded by these uh relative uplands uh, that are just almost bare rock with uh, quite a bit of ponderosa pine grown through the rock area so we have f- some really highly productive meadows and some really low production uh, trees and rocks so we've kind of figured out how to manage all that. And then, then i have a, another 50 acres of irrigated ground that kind of helps, um, plug in the shortages. I guess that's one way to put it. Uh, we, we hayed that ground for years and years and years. And then we quit haying it, uh, probably, oh, it's been maybe 20 years ago. No, now not quite 15 <clears throat> and just graze it now. So, uh, yeah, I'll hand it over to Beth at, from that point.
1: Yeah, I'd say that's a pretty pretty accurate description. It's about about two thirds of the ranch is uh, these basalt cliffs that are pretty pretty low productivity. Maybe more what you'd think of in terms of like central Washington, uh, and then we have these sub irrigated lowland meadows that are just in incredibly rich uh, deep soil and and very high productivity. So we're kind of managing a, a non brittle and brittle environment side by side. It's kind of a wild uh, contrast, but uh, I'm very glad we have the sub-irrigated meadows.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty, but not easy to deal with. You also have some odd non-natural barriers on the ranch. Not many people have a freeway going right through the middle. Yeah, we
1: also have Interstate 90 going through the middle of the ranch, which is another interesting uh, management (laughs) factor to take into consideration.
2: Yeah, a couple of t- a couple of times a year we move the herd from one side to the other uh and I uh, have two stock trailers and we move about 160 head in about 4 or 5 hours so my cows load well.
0: <laughs> At some point you must have made the shift Morris from uh, selling calves to selling pounds of beef and doing direct marketing. When did when did that shift occur and why?
2: Well, we've always from, uh, as long as I can remember, we've always had a few butcher beef around and uh, usually half a dozen. And, uh, uh, and then for, uh, from 81, when I started here until about 96, we were very conventional, you know, uh, as conventional as can be. I mean, and then in, in 96, we switched to holistic management and, and, uh, Uh, gradually probably had a lot to do with shifting to the total direct, direct marketing had a lot to do with Beth coming home and taking over the marketing part, part of it. So it was probably when we went to full, full sales was probably what?
1: uh, I think 2012. I, so I came home in 2010. um, And, and the last year of my undergrad, I had really kind of focused on, this direct marketing effort and how to—it um, it was pretty clear that the the ranch was not going to be financially successful um, unless we could get a more premium price for our product, uh, and and not just the, not just to make more money, but also having the the certainty of being able to set our prices based off of our cost of production instead of taking whatever the commodity off. Uh, market was offering, which is sometimes uh, great and sometimes not. Um, mm. So that was sort of the driver behind the direct marketing. And the, and the other piece of that was that we were, um, you know, my dad ha- it was really kind of pioneering holistic management practices in the region. And we were doing all of these incredible uh, things with how we were managing the cattle on, on the land. And uh, not receiving any kind of a premium for that product. And I, I went to school at Western Washington University. So I lived in Bellingham, which, you know, has a pretty hip uh, farm to table scene and grass fed beef was like a big thing. And I was like, dad, you know, there's people are are paying out the nose for this stuff. And, and we're kind of just selling mm-hmm. it on the commodity market. Um, so what would it look like if we, you know, again, we kind of mentioned we're we're just 16 miles from downtown Spokane um, we have like a big urban, uh, market that, that we could capture. And, uh, and so I started really thinking about how we could do that, do more of a direct sales program. So, uh, when I moved home, we kind of started that effort, uh, transitioning from selling calves on the commodity market to doing a grass fed and finished beef program. So that meant that first we had to hold over a year of calves, um, which obviously has some economic implications, mm-hmm. um, but so so it was kind of a gradual shift over a couple of years. Um, but I think by 2012 we were doing 100% direct to consumer sales.
0: Wow! Yeah, that takes a whole different set of skills than uh, than just animal husbandry. And I say just animal husbandry as if it's a small thing, but but it is a different set of skills to try to find the market yourself and connect with those consumers and, and prepare a, a flow of product. How do you manage? So maybe what are, what are some of the customers that you are uh, reliant upon now or that are reliant upon you? I should say.
1: Yeah. So, so really my, my direct marketing strategy was to take the, the same model that we had always had on the ranch, but just, Transition more and more of our production in that direction. So we sell, um, I would say, like eighty-five to ninety percent of our product goes uh, goes in custom beef sales. So it's halves and quarters that go direct to consumer. Uh, so we're just selling to to families. I don't do farmers markets. Um, I don't really do much uh, much USDA product, I look at what we, what we send USDA is a marketing expense more than anything, because not everybody's ready to buy a side of beef uh, without having the chance to try the product first. Um, but I think, you know, one of the advantages that I, that I had coming back is that, you know, I'm 30 years younger than most of the ranchers in this area. And so, you know, even though I'm not like a website designer or anything like that, I like I had, I knew enough. I was, internet literate enough to like build a a website. And um, I knew that people needed to be able to pay with a credit card and, you know, not be just, just like some things to make, they don't seem that revolutionary now, but, but at the time it was like, no one, even the people that were doing custom beef sales, maybe didn't have like a very aesthetically pleasing website and you still had to pay with a check or with cash. So a few of those little convenience things definitely helped give us an edge, um, and then we just really focus on customer retention, trying to keep the same, the same folks coming back year and year. Cause I actually, uh, don't like selling my product that much. <laughs> I don't like going out and hustling. I just, I, right now the way that our, our marketing system kind of works is I have an email list. Um, there's. There's a, a email that goes out once a year that says beef deposits are open. Um, usually in about five or six weeks, we sell out. So our customers have to put a, a $250 deposit down to reserve their beef. And then that books them a spot for our summer harvest. And then we have uh, actually the same mobile butcher that uh, custom butcher that we've worked with uh, since the 80s um, is still still the same family business that we work with for our um for our direct sales today, and so they come out about every week or every other week throughout the summer, and they harvest uh, five to eight beef at a time, and then uh, customers pick their beef up directly from the butcher, and I invoice them the balance of whatever they owe after the after the deposit.
0: Hmm. Uh, to what extent is is food service a viable option for you know? for operations of your size? Is it, is it too difficult to be able to supply something regularly or is it just not worth the hassle? seems like that would be a good steady, uh, income.
1: Yeah. You know, I, um, we have worked with restaurants in the past. I've definitely dabbled in that, uh, until actually up until this year, Gonzaga university was a customer of ours. We were supplying their dining services, uh, obviously, COVID has been super disruptive in that sense. So, uh, I think that's probably a, a relationship that's coming to an end, which I actually feel fine about. Um, but the there's there's quite a few challenges to me for for working with more of those institutional or food service type businesses. Uh, one is that it's it's really hard to build relationships because there's really high turnover um so so once uh you know there's that you might have a chef that you create a great relationship with, but they may only stay two or three years, and then you have to start over from scratch with a with a new chef and um you know we're just a two person or you know we have a little bit of part time help we're a two and a half person outfit, so I don't have a bunch of time to to chase uh chase my customers around <laughs> and then the other challenge of that is that mm-hmm. not very many. Uh, restaurants are set up to do whole animal utilization. That really takes a special skill set um, to make that work in a restaurant concept. And while there is quite a burgeoning food scene in Spokane, there isn't a whole ton of um, there. There aren't a lot of chefs that are they're willing to do that. And so the whole then you have to get into inventory management and figuring out how to part out, you know, your beef and get the right cuts moved to the right. Uh, places and I would much rather sell animals in the quantities I have to kill them in, <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh for that reason, doing the ha- half and quarter beefs uh that's just worked way better for for us and then processing is another bottleneck um There's a couple USDA slaughter facilities, but they're all a two plus hour drive from us uh, compared to my mobile butcher who comes and kills on farms. So I don't have to do anything other than get out of bed and make myself a cup of coffee in the morning. Um, So, so there, yeah, there's a lot of reasons why for, for our business, uh, the, the custom beef just works, works a lot better.
0: So you harvest animals when it works for your, um, workflow on the ranch.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know I mean?
0: Yeah. I was just thinking that, uh, you know, f- finances can generate a lot of conflict within families and within industries and livestock associations have gotten wrapped around the axle over this feeling, I think on the part of ranchers that they should be capturing more of the retail dollar. Uh, you know, this seems like a pretty good option. How, how, do you think it's reasonable for the average commercial rancher to do some direct marketing? Should they start with part of their herd? Uh, there's, I realize there's no such thing as an average. There was a farmer here in Ellensburg who said <laughs> he'd been ranching here for 75 years and he's still waiting for an average one. I think that applies to people even more than environments. Nevertheless, you know, there, we, we do have a, a lot of the ranching industry in the United States is, uh, you know, family owner operators that have just enough animals to make a bit of a living at it, you know, for those people, do you think it's reasonable for them to uh, look at direct marketing as a way to, to capture more of the retail? Is is it worth their time and trying to learn new skills?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, it's so dependent, uh, on, on what the individual farm or ranch, like what, what their desired outcomes are um, you know for for our family like I just happen to have a skill set that like, I'm really interested in marketing I'm a pretty decent photographer I'm a pretty decent writer um, I have a good sense for how to tell a story about our product and uh, if those weren't things that came naturally to me I would probably find a different way to sell my beef but that said I've learned mm-hmm. a ton of skills that uh, I did not know, and you can learn anything off of YouTube. So, <laughs> I I definitely spend uh, have spent quite a bit of time like learning how to build websites and um, you know, search engine optimization and all kinds of things that I I'm not deeply passionate about, but are just part of running a business. Uh, so yeah, I, I think especially if you're close to an urban center and and there's a processing uh, outlet that makes sense, it's definitely uh, been the the direct marketing program has been a really important stabilizing force for our business uh like i mentioned earlier just being able to set a cost based a a price based off of our cost of production and not just what the market's doing at whatever day we decide to take our calves to market um Mm -hmm. there's there's definitely advantages to it but uh i also don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily an infinitely scalable model because there's also for, at least for the way that we're selling our beef, there's, there's only so many people out there that um, want to buy a a whole side of beef, <laughs> you know, like there are enough people like that in Spokane and, and there's definitely some customer education um, that, that we do to help kind of pave the way for that in terms of whole animal utilization and and just how to cook all the different cuts which is something that is super foreign to most people the way our food system works like you like a lot of people basically just know how to cook ground beef and steaks and then grass-fed beef is a whole like takes kind of a whole nother level of skill to really yield a product that is delicious and and tender and an enjoyable eating experience so yeah, I, I guess it's, it's just super dependent on, on the individual.
2: I'd, I'd add, I'd add though, that if somebody does consider moving this direction is to, uh, take baby steps. Don't, don't commit your whole program to it. Um, in case something does Mm -hmm. go wrong and it, and it is a learning curve and, um, the, yeah, just, just, it's like anything in agriculture, uh, uh, Take it easy as you get into it in case something goes wrong. uh, You're not sinking the ship.
0: Mm -hmm. Take five head and see if you can sell them to your neighbors. Yep. Uh, You mentioned grass finishing. I assume most of that occurs on the ranch. And I know just enough about meat science to be dangerous talking about it. But I think I understand that there's a big difference between raising animals out to a slaughter weight on pasture and finishing animals that, um, that have, you know, meat that's of a quality you would like to eat. There's a difference between reaching a slaughter weight and finishing cattle. How do you, how do you finish cattle assuming that they're done on the ranch there?
1: Yeah, that's, Definitely, definitely an art and a science, and we're always trying to kind of refine, uh, refine our product. And we've certainly made some bad grass-fed beef. So it's not like, yeah, it's not like you can just turn the cows loose and you're gonna get a great grass-finished product. Um, so, luckily, creating a, I, I, I mean, I would say luckily creating a high-quality grass-fed product really fits in with a lot of our other uh, management goals and ethics uh, in terms of just like aligning our operations with natural cycles and um, and really trying to maximize ecological benefit and efficiency of our of our mother cows so we so we do cow calf through finish everything happens here on the ranch uh, a big part of that is well one because like many people who are in cow-calf were very sentimental about our cows and, and I can't imagine us ever really going to a stalker operation because we just love our mama cows. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it also really allows us to have control of the genetics so that we, we can make sure that we're creating a product that at the very end of the life cycle it is truly like finished and high quality grass-fed beef. So we've moved to a smaller, smaller cow size. We've uh, bred really for the last 10 years or so we've bred in quite a bit of like Aberdeen Angus or lowline Angus genetics um, to bring our frame size down also helps us minimize our winter feed inputs. Um, and I think, there's lots of good evidence behind why a smaller cow is just a more, more efficient, uh, cow. And, um, yeah, I I think, uh, we don't have it all figured out. We're definitely always trying to get things keyed in, but, uh, but the the goal is to create both like the most ecologically sound product and also a a product that is really uh, delightful to the end consumer. I don't know if you want to say anything else about that, dad.
2: Well, one of the one of the factors that helps this is because we harvest every two weeks during the summer, we, and we usually start about mid July. We also have summer calves, so we're harvesting about the same time we're calving. Um, we we put the herd in the corral, and then when we sort off those to be butchered, we sort off the very best um, steers that, and a few heifers uh, steers that are in the corral at that time that That gives us the cream of the crop, and by the time we start in July by the time we finish in September, that's another eight weeks of growth that you could put on that bottom that bottom steer that you've looked at the first week so that gives us a little more uh quality control and 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 we can get them as big and as fat as possible uh, so that's a that's a a real plus for the operation
0: I like the idea that that Beth, your skill sets are complementary and have enabled some of that to happen. I really feel like uh, we don't recognize the extent to which having people who think differently is useful in a variety of contexts. I recall hearing Temple Grandin talking at, I think, the Society for Range Management conference several years ago. She was the keynote speaker on the opening day, and uh, she was describing how, how she sees and uh, feels the world, sees things and images, makes different associations from images rather than words inside her head. Uh, And she was describing uh, some, some consulting work she'd been doing recently in California and was talking with, uh, with, I think actually tech executives about the importance of having people who think Differently than you do, and the example she gave was uh, the the Fukushima nuclear reactor disaster in Japan a few years ago. Uh, she said, "Here you have a culture that is almost defined by the tsunami, and yet uh, they they build a nuclear reactor that has the backup systems below sea level, and." You know, the, the number of things that are wrong with that picture are, uh, are, is, is large. You know, first you have nuclear engineers who think pretty linearly and you have the Japanese culture, which uh, typically or st- maybe stereotypically, you know, doesn't ask for help and so you can go all the way through the construction of a nuclear power plant and not see this glaring error in the you know the resiliency of this backup system and i think it's accurate that we can run some of those same risks in agriculture when we when we don't have people with a variety of skill sets and and ways of thinking that are that are involved and i actually think right now is is a good time for young people to be interested in ranching, uh, you have done some some work, you know, really promoting sustainable ranching uh, with you know non traditional ranching audiences. Can you talk a bit about uh, the cowgirl school that you've done for some time?
1: Yeah, I would love to. I would. There's nothing I'd rather talk about than cowgirl camp. Uh, so. Cowgirl Camp is uh, is an educational program that we run on the ranch. It's a it's a five-day intensive course for women that are interested in getting started in regenerative agriculture and raising livestock. And uh, I co-teach it with a dear friend of mine, Sandy Matheson, who actually went to holistic management training with my dad back in the mid-90s. Um, that's how she and I got connected, but she's also a, a multi-generation woman, woman rancher. Part of what is so special about what we're doing with Cowgirl Camp is, just as you were saying, bringing a, a diversity of, of mindsets and, and experiences and exposing them to the world of, of ranching, which can be kind of intimidating to get into and also has lots of economic barriers that are maybe outside of the scope of this conversation, but definitely merit discussion. Um, but I, I really think of our... I, I I think of how we look at grassland ecosystem health or, or the way that I was trained to think about it uh, you you really look at the, at the community of, of plants and uh, and typically diversity is is seen as a really positive indicator of of resiliency. So you want to have plants that are different species, different ages, different classes. Um, you want to have a mix of of forbs and grasses and shrubs and trees. And that's what really creates a a resilient dynamic system. And, uh, I really apply that, that same lens to looking at at our human managers and, um, what we see is, is not a ton of, (laughs) not a ton of diversity. We see, you know, mostly Mm -hmm. older white men, um, and uh, and and I don't see that as a, as an indicator of a resilient dynamic system. So um, part of the work we're we're really trying to do through Cowgirl Camp is create a little crack in that um, just just in a pa- as we would in a pasture, try to create the conditions for what we want to have to grow, um, what our desirable plants are. Uh, so too, with Cowgirl Camp, we're really trying to create, um, this nursery for for a more diverse uh, group of of managers to start to germinate. Uh, so so Sandy and I kind of have gone on this adventure of creating a curriculum uh, that's really focused on women and and creating a, an environment where they uh, feel welcomed and celebrated. And it's just a really fun. Uh, exciting way to kind of get your feet wet in the in the world of ranching. Um, so we teach a lot of the holistic management curriculum. They learn how to make a grazing plan. Oh, first of all, most importantly, they learn how to make a holistic context. Um, so that you know, defining your quality of life and the future resource base, what you want the environment and uh, and your community to look like in the future. How to make management decisions that are uh, socially, economically, and environmentally sound and well vetted, uh, and how to, how to make a grazing plan, how to do ecological monitoring. And we also teach a lot of the technical skills. Um, so they learn low stress livestock handling. Some of the women that come have, have like literally never seen a cow in, in real life up close before. So they get a chance to move some sheep around in my yard, understand flight zones and how to apply pressure. Uh, my dad does a little fence building, uh, boot camp. So they all get to stretch some barbed wire fence and learn how to use some of the common tools. Um, yeah. And we just get like every year, it's just an incredible group of, of women that come from all kinds of different backgrounds. Um, but, but they're all really interested in this question of, of how, how do we feed our communities and how do we, um, how do we do that in a way that really shows care for the land and care for the animals, um, and, and care for each other.
0: Yeah, I like that. I'm reminded of, um, uh, an experience I had several years ago, not long after I started with WSU where a colleague of mine, Tom Brannon had just retired and was looking for someone to take over, uh, range and forest horseback tours that he did with high school, uh, vocational ag students. And, uh, you know, you would think that that particular subset of, a high school would be people that had some experience, you know, being out in the middle of nowhere uh, on the land. And, you know, we would, we would do some teaching about food cycles and forestry practices and um, basic ecology. Uh, But, but nearly without exception, by far the, the most significant part of that experience for students was just, being in nature, horseback, where they could observe for hours, essentially uninterrupted what's going on in the natural world and just take it in. And I was shocked at how many of these students really, truly had, had never done that. And it uh, it affects how you see the world and and the things that you value. And I'm really encouraged that we seem to live at a time when people are paying a little bit more attention to how their food is raised and, and are... And we live, also live in a country where many people have enough disposable income to use their dollars uh, uh, to, to also influence that. And so I, I like what you're doing because I feel like the story of regenerative agriculture needs to be told more broadly and that uh, people that are not familiar with agriculture who have an interest in agriculture, you know, should have... The ability to, to learn about that and, you know, in particular range and pasture based beef production uh, is, you know, nearly by definition, one of the most sustainable agricultural pursuits uh, that's out there. I just picked up uh, the new book. I said not real new, but a new book by Courtney White, who was the one of the founders of the Quivira Coalition called the title of the book is Grass, Soil, Hope. A journey through Carbon Country, and the the foreword of the book is written by uh, Michael Pollan, and many people will be familiar with that author uh, for his best-selling book Omnivore's Dilemma. Uh, but in the in the in the prologue, Michael Pollan points out that that there is this widespread um, pessimism about agriculture and about human engagement with nature. In general, because we have this idea that that it, that's a zero sum game. That uh, he says, for us to rest whatever we need or want from nature food, energy, pleasure means that nature must be diminished. More of us, more for us means less for it. And examples of this trade off are depressingly easy to find. Uh, but he goes on to say, there are counterexamples that point to a way out of that dismal math. And he goes on to talk about uh, grass farming, where you truly can add to the planet and not just rearrange some things because of the nature of photosynthesis and how livestock utilize that. And uh, I think involving people, even people who don't intend to be involved in agriculture in in what you guys are doing uh, is extremely important. Maybe we'll uh, segue here to another question. You've been doing um, what could be called holistic management for some time, and I I think a lot of people, especially in the traditional uh, range community, see this as just a a grazing method. Holistic management would be synonymous in their minds with uh, short-duration, high-intensity grazing. Uh, But I've, I've heard several times you guys talking about um, making decisions, looking at multiple spheres of, uh, you know, decision space in in deciding uh, how to do and and what to do. Can you talk talk a bit about um, what I think I understand as a a decision making framework rather than a grazing method?
2: Take it, Beth.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I I think some of the some of the things I was alluding to, um, about, about defining quality of life and defining the future resource base. I think that's really the, the secret sauce of holistic management. And, um, and we get so caught up in like the, how, like, like we're supposed to move the cows, like get the cows bunched together and move them around and that's holistic management. Um, but that's really just a, a, means of production that's a technique you can use to get a certain outcome but it's not really holistic management uh so the way that i think of holistic management is really um how can we how can we frame our management in a way that is proactive that's thoughtful that has an end result in mind that's uh really far into the future like beyond our own lifetimes because we uh we are managing ecosystems, right? We are part of ecosystems. We're not just, we're not some outside force. We are part of nature. And uh and we can through our through our decisions influence uh what our ecosystems around us look like. So um sometimes those are those are very concrete things like I want to have more forage um, or I want to reduce fire reduction in our in our forest land. Um, and sometimes those are those are more amorphous things like thinking about I want to you know I want to have a community that um, where people are really connected and and show care for each other. Um, education is a huge part of our, our family's holistic context, ha- having and making sure that members of our family and members of our community have opportunity to pursue education. Um, those are all management objectives that, that we are uh, that we're working towards. And anytime we make a management decision, um, holistic management has kind of a framework of these, these seven testing guidelines that are really just a series of questions to break down very complex management decisions into simpler little bite-sized pieces. So you think about co- cause and effect. Is this management? Decision addressing a root cause of a problem, or is this addressing a symptom? Uh, there's some financial questions in there about gross profit margin and uh, or gr- gross profit and marginal uh, gross margin analysis, and looking at which enterprises kind of contribute the most to your bottom line or give you the most bang for your buck. Uh, you think about where the energy or the money is coming from to do to like execute any management decision uh, and how it's used. Is it used in a way that's going to be like sort of an addictive thing where we're going to have to use more uh, it more and more inputs every time we face this problem, or again, kind of going back to that root cause, can we, can we use this money or energy in a way that's really going to be a one-time intervention that will sort of shift, um, shift the dynamics of, uh, of of what we're managing, um, thinking about how our impact, how our how our management decisions impact the people around us in our community. Um, it, it's really just, uh, and and finally, like is is this management decision moving us towards? Uh, the future resource base that we desire. So is this helping us create the kind of world that we want to live in? And I think that that, that's such a powerful way to approach any major management decision more than uh, is this going to make me money or not? Or is this uh, the way we've done things in the past? Or is this going against like what the cultural norms are, which are sort of the reactive ways that a lot of people make management decisions? Um, we're really trying to ground our our management in a more uh, holistic way, which is where the whole idea of holistic management comes from. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Thinking about every aspect of the of the operation and all of the possible decisions that could be made. Um, our mutual friend uh, Don Nelson, who was a beef specialist at WSU for many, many years, recently passed away, like to say, you know, what is the best possible outcome and what is the worst possible outcome and what decisions would lead you to those uh, various endpoints and and weigh them against each other. Uh, As I said, you've been doing this for some time. Can you give an example of, of, you know, where that thinking and planning has led you in terms of how you manage, uh, in particular, you know, these pretty starkly different environments of the irrigators or sub irrigated pasture alongside a pretty dry, brittle rangeland?
2: Well one of the things we've done is uh we, we use extensive electric fence. And we these 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 meadows are about a hundred acres. Um, we've got two of them. And though and that that 200 acres provides 80% of the forage for the ranch. The other, the other 80% of the ranch provides about 20% of the forage. And that's trees and meadows. Uh, so over the last, oh, I don't know, well, 10 or 15 years, uh, we've, we've designed the, the meadows uh, with permanent cross fences, electric, hot, electric cross fences with a centralized hub area that has access gates on each corner that has access to the different paddocks. And uh, so that gives us a ton of control. And so if we want to graze a particular area very intensely, we can come off of the permanent hot single wire, hot wire um, with um, temporary poly wire and step in posts. So we, we have tremendous flexibility in, in how we want to graze graze a particular part of the meadow or all of the meadow, uh, and that that infrastructure design has really uh, uh, h- helped uh, get get uh, to, I, I call it op- optimizing ecosystem processes. And uh, the few the few um, uh, we're in that soil carbon challenge with uh, Peter Donovan out of Enterprise, and we've had our second uh second assessment on his test plots and we tripled our soil organic matter on those test plots so we're pretty pretty happy with that and and then some of the test plots we we were up eight or nine ten percent soil organic matter so we probably uh, have really close to optimal levels there um and then and then we've taken some of the to a lesser extent some of the same technology out in through the trees and and uh are able to concentrate the grazing areas there, um, so I guess the the infra their infrastructure uh, has has really been uh, one of, one of the big one of the big pluses, and then, and and then developing that slowly to see what works, and actually I think we're about ready to uh, re- redo a one of the whole eight, one of the meadows extensively because it the original design <clears throat> isn't quite working out as good as it could
1: yeah and i think it's really not a one-size-fits-all approach like the the two well I, I would say there's more than two ecosystem types because we're in kind of a we're we're in an ecotone in this area so it's kind of where to where two ecosystems mash up together and if you go uh 20 miles in one direction you'll be in more of like an alpine environment and you go 20 miles in another direction Mm -hmm. you're in the high desert um so you know you can't just say like oh this this many thousand pounds of beef per acre or like this mob grazing technique is always going to be appropriate across the whole ranch and it also doesn't always make economic sense uh I mean, it it would not be uh, a good use of our time to have intensive cross fencing in our ponderosa pine forest because, you know, you're adding There's nothing there to eat. Yeah, you're adding like a couple hours of grazing, maybe, uh, and putting in like a thousand dollars worth of infrastructure to do that doesn't doesn't always make sense. But, um, but I do think like it what what the approach we have taken is prioritizing getting the most productive parts of the ranch functioning. As well as we can, and then uh, kind of moving down that priority list and and paying more attention to the low productivity areas as we kind of maximize those those high productivity areas.
0: Yeah, in regard to those high productivity areas, you guys have done some uh, experimentation with what's sometimes called mob grazing. You know, which is an effort both to optimize the animal's consumption, but also uh, maybe. Maximize uh, the soil health by increasing, in theory, how much gets trampled versus what's get, what gets eaten. Um, how would you describe your experience with that? Was it worth the effort? You know, there's always this this tension where, an economics, marginal revenue uh, is meeting marginal cost. You know, is is the additional cost both in terms of time and infrastructure to try to make that happen? worth what you what you're getting back from it
2: well as I often tell people it, the first answer I use is it depends and the situations are different in different places so we've probably for three years we did a research project with WSU uh, on some grazing techniques and uh, we were running up to 100,000 pounds of beef per acre maybe 150,000 pounds on some, at that at some point and then doing soil samples and forage samples af, after the fact um, results are really kind of inconclusive on on that study uh, i was expecting big big dramatic impacts and it didn't really happen in in hindsight i think part of the part of the reason is is that we were a little too intense and we probably grazed grazed the residual uh, grasses down too far, and there wasn't really anything left after we left for the soil microbes to uh, advance cycling processes through. Um, on the other place, on the other hand, some of the other places we've done it, we've had really good luck. Uh, that so that was so, sort of soil type dependent and moisture dependent. All those mm-hmm. things uh, are impacts that are very complicated and. Uh, re- require a lot of astute, careful observation to figure out what's going on. Um, and then the other thing is in terms of, um, does it really pay out? Before I got into that project and, knew it, and I knew it was coming, I set up the infrastructure uh, with lanes, with gates, uh, the length of the field, so it was really quite easy. It was really a matter of opening and shutting gates. That's, and, and my cows are so trained uh, that when they see me come during, during the day, they know that they're going to go get fresh groceries. So it, it, uh, I had the infrastructure set up, so all I had to do was open and close gates and, and move maybe a quarter mile of hot wire, um, uh, which is a 15-minute you know, job. So I had, it, I had it set up ahead of time to, to minimize the amount of effort and be very efficient.
0: Uh, before we quit, I want to go back to, to a, a couple questions about uh, involving the the public, I guess in in what you're doing, uh, you know, f- for myself as an academic whose work is mostly intangible, I highly value you people who, as I say, it make the world go round, producing food, conserving soil, uh, generating ecosystem goods and services for the rest of us, uh, and I want to thank you for that. And I also see that people need to know more about that. And, you know, one of the objectives of the grant funding for this podcast, which comes from the Western Center for Risk Management Education, is to examine some of the ways to diversify revenue on a ranch. And I'm curious if you've thought about some other ways to try to monetize some of these ecosystem goods and services uh, with, you know, agro-tourism, with um, – there's a, a few possibilities out there. I'm just curious if you've thought about it.
1: I've definitely chewed on that a bit. Um I think
0: ruminated even. <laughs>
1: uh I, I think there's ton, tons of opportunity um for, for us to do things like that. I've been thinking about like getting some some little canvas tents set up and just just inviting more people out to um And, and not even, I mean, it would be great to like, obviously cover our costs and everything, but I also feel pretty strongly that, um, it's just so important for people to have access to, uh, to nature and to the outdoors and to, like you were saying, just really be, Mm -hmm. uh, be present in, uh, in, yeah. In like large scale ecosystems, like obviously parks are wonderful. And, um, but, but to be in, uh, in places that, that are a little more intact ecologically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that that's something that, that we have a responsibility to do. Um, And so, yeah, I think that's something that you're going to see in the next couple of years that the lazy are is more opportunities to get folks out on the land and, and, uh, and connected to those open spaces, because I think it's just, it's so important for people's hearts and souls to have, have that kind of connection
0: yeah I've heard that in, in some places in China they have oxygen bars or the air quality is so bad that you go somewhere to pay to breathe some clean air <clears throat> I'd like to think that we don't get there uh, nevertheless I do think that people are willing to uh, should be willing and, and maybe should be even willing to pay to step away from their social media feed and just uh, experience the real world for a little while. And what better place to do that than, you know, a functioning cattle ranch that produces real food somewhere near an urban center.
1: Yeah. And we have such amazing wildlife habitat here too. Like I know, like what what we do for money is the cows, but um, there's just, it's just such a beautiful place. It's really special. So I want to share it with more people.
0: Well, I can't remember whether you guys have a, a website that people could go to if they want to learn more about the lazy r
1: yeah we do it's lazyrbeef.com. uh and we also have a website for new cowgirl camp which is newcowgirlcamp.com. cowgirl uh, and you can follow me on instagram as well which is at lazy ranch
0: great and we'll put those links in the show notes as well so that people don't even have to make it this far into the audio to <laughs> to find it um, again, Beth and Morris, thank you for what you're doing. I really do appreciate it. And thank you for your time today.
2: Thanks for having us on tip. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Thanks,
0: thank you for listening to the art of range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. So you never miss an episode. Just search for art of range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com for articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast please see the show notes at artofrange.com listener feedback is important to the success of our mission empowering rangeland managers please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture.